Welcome to Famous with Kate and Liz. Who we happen to be um, the most unfamous women in the world. <laughs> I love that this is called Famous. Hi, guys. Yeah. We are the most unfamous. It's a play on words. It's um, a touch of irony. <laughs> it is. <laughs> we love irony around here. Everything um, and more, honestly. So you're welcome. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'm Kate, the unfamous Kate. <laughs> and I'm Liz, the unfamous Liz. Um, Kate's on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast. And you know, this podcast is all about exploring famous uh, scandals, people, crimes, whatever, like everything, fill in the blank. Everything and anything. Yeah. yeah. And um, so our last series was Famous Divas. And we kind of wanted to, you know, we like to switch it up. We don't like to stay on one thing for too long. So um, we are doing our newest series on Famous Heists. Yes, heist, robberies, cat burglaries, you know, things like that. Anything. Nature. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, my God. But I did love Famous Divas, like, so much. I just saw um, this thing on, about the death of Michael Jackson, and they had tons of photos and footage of him and Diana Ross. So, yeah, yep, I was just yep. thinking about our last episode. But, yes, heist, like, okay, these, I'm always impressed because I feel like people who pull these off are like so smart and genius. And it's a very like classy kind of crime, right? There's no like blood yes. involved usually if you right, do it right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think of like a heist, like you get your like glass cutter out and you just like, yes. like a total like cat burglary. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's just what I picture. Like a exactly. James Bond movie, like Catwoman type situation. Absolutely. And I love it because like, you know, especially the case we're going to talk about um, tonight, but like a lot of times it's not just like money that people are stealing, like they're stealing art, which is like super valuable. And you learn about like these other things that are almost more valuable than just like cold, hard cash, you know? So I think that's always interesting too. And then you have to like keep them hidden and stored in like certain ways. So people, you know, can't find them and you can't be taxed on them. And it's, it's a whole intricate process it is it's pretty involved it's pretty fucking involved um but so this is of course always our first episode in a series we do our famous duet episodes so for this one um I think it's pretty cool that we're doing this together because we've both been to this place so yes this is this is listen people in (laughs) unsolved half a billion dollar heist of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So that is what we're covering this week. Yeah, Boston, um, Massachusetts, right? Exactly, exactly. We've both been able to go, I mean, honestly have the honor to enter this building. Um, And not together, we didn't go together, but we've Mm -hmm. both been here. Like oh. a landmark of Boston. If you're ever there, you definitely have to go to it. You know, I'm not sure, you know, you COVID and whatnot, but like absolutely have to go. I know they're doing like virtual tours online, but it is like just like eccentric art threw up into the most classy way possible. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The most beautiful building possible. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. I was saying earlier to you, like, 
this is probably the coolest museum I've ever been to. And I mean, I haven't been to like museums all over the world, but I've been to some pretty cool museums, I think. So, um, but this is like, I think, top of the list. Top of the list. And it's even better when you go knowing that this crazy heist happened here. Absolutely. You might not know if you're just walking around, um, you know, and didn't know the background. So I kind of hope people haven't been there. Yes. And unsolved to this day. Well, and like um, when you go there, we'll get into it, but there are still remnants of the crime just yeah. visible today uh, because of because of certain legal stipulations. Um, so we'll get into all that, which is really cool because they, it's not like they're trying to hide from this happening. They really can't. So... And that makes right. the, like, the allure all more enticing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're going to cover the background. So I'm going to sit back and relax, drink my wine. Yes. Okay. And listen to the background. Because um, we also have to obviously talk about Isabel Stewart Gardner yes, herself. Yes. Right. Tell me everything because having been to her museum I don't remember learning too much about, like, who the woman is. So, please. And what a woman she was. Um, She was just known kind of for being, like, this eccentric philanthropist personality in Boston. And I just want to start by reading this quote um, that I think sums up who she was very eloquently um and it just captures you know what I in my mind think of her so it says um and she was known by a lot of different names so it says Mrs. Jack Gardner is one of the seven wonders of Boston there is nobody like her in any city in this country she is a millionaire bohemian she is the leader of the smart set but she often leads where none dare follow she imitates nobody everything she does is novel and original And that was by a Boston reporter. (laughs) I mean, would you rather be described any other way? No, I mean, she's just such a trendsetter trailblazer at her time, you know. Just such an original. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Love her. Love her. So, again, about Isabella, she just possessed this, like, energetic intellectual curiosity. Um, She loved to travel. She loved to collect art. She was friends with many noted artists and writers of the day, including John Singer Sargent and James McNeil Whistler, Um, you know, so people like that that were, like, coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite paintings in the museum is a John Singer Sargent um so Mm -hmm. you know it's it's cool to know that she was actually friends with him and like I said she was just kind of like known for being eccentric she was often talked about in the gossip columns um and she was known by a lot of different names um in the society pages including Belle, Donna Elizabeth, Elizabeth of Boston, and Mrs. Jack um, and this is probably one of my favorite things about her, but she made a very surprising appearance at a 1912 concert, um, of the very formal Boston Symphony Orchestra. Oh, and right. <laughs> yep. she arrived, Black tie. right. 1912. She arrived wearing a white headband that was emblazoned with the phrase, 
Oh, you Red Sox. <laughs> no, no, of course. As only a true Sox fan would Boston do. Man, right? Oh uh, my God. I I love this woman. You are killing it with these episodes. Like literally just <laughs> love the things I'm learning from you these days. <laughs> well, I love her. True role model. Um, it was set to have caused a panic, right? And it still remains in Boston. One of the most talked about, you know, eccentric things that has ever happened in like high society. <laughs> oh God, I love that for her. Okay, so fill us in on where she came from. Like, what are her roots? Okay, so Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840. Uh, she was born into a well-to-do family. Her father was David Stewart. And he made his fortune importing Irish linen um, and other, you know, doing other investments. Um, they lived in the West okay. Village and she was privately educated in New York and finished abroad. So she went to a finishing school somewhere. Finishing school. Okay. Abroad. Very so, of the day. Okay. Yeah, so well to do for sure. Um, and I think it didn't say this for sure. I got this information from the, um, the museum website, but it said that a Paris schoolmate, so I'm assuming maybe that's where she was finished at, named Julia Gardner introduced Isabella to her brother, Jack Lowell Gardner Jr. Um, and she went on to marry him in 1860, a few days before her 20th birthday. Um, and they married Yep. So they moved to Jack's hometown of Boston and they settled in the back bay um, on Beacon Street and the house was a wedding gift from her father. So again, if I didn't like mention it. Next time I'm in Boston, (laughs) I'm going to go to this place on Beacon Street. Yeah, it has. I love the back bay. Yeah, 152 Beacon Street. Okay. I love that. Okay. I have to remember to look for that next time. Um, so this is kind of sad. In, in 1863, the Gardners had a son, John Lowell Gardner III, who they called Jackie. But he died of pneumonia at less than two years old. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And that so, like, Isabella so was heartbroken and depressed, obviously. And so that was probably 19, or 1865. And two years later, in 1867, her doctor advised... Um, her husband to take her to like Europe and Russia to go traveling with her to try to get her out of this depression that she had been in. Okay. So they did, they just started traveling everywhere. They also went to Egypt and the middle East. um, And she just became alive again. She reveled in traveling. She loved keeping like elaborate journals about her visits and she loved you know this is kind of how she got introduced to art and artifacts too yeah what a great way to like really I mean honestly I feel like if you're like bored and whatever like you're just so feeling like living a mundane life like go see another part of the world how other people are living it's like such an eye-opener so that's yeah, you don't smart, have to be they rich thought... like them. You know, you can still, you know, save your money, whatever, and do it like backpack, hostels, whatever. Go like just experience like a, you know, a different culture. I think really kind of yeah. get out of your comfort zone, right? Yeah, and yeah. 
it teaches you like perspective too, you know, which is I think like important. But anyway, okay. Absolutely. All right. So I really love that they did that together as a couple. Um, but she also loved the intellectual life of Boston and Cambridge. She loved living there. And in 1878, she attended the readings of Charles Eliot Norton, the very first professor of art history at Harvard University. And he invited oh. her to join what was known as the Dante Society. <laughs> okay. um, and just kind of like a learning society. They, um, through Charles Norton's like encouragement, she started collecting rare books and manuscripts um, and early editions of Dante's work. Um, the, the author Dante oh, so like oh. that he's kind of who in, helped introduce her into like how you acquire like these rare things interesting okay so mm -hmm. she's probably just like a bored housewife and mm -hmm. then is like hmm let me get like into this little club and then that just like really is probably where everything started from yeah yeah seemed like you know the travels then now she's like looking more into how to find and authenticate things and then in 1884 Isabella and Jack visited Palazzo Vibario a Venetian palace owned by fellow Bostonians Daniel and Ariana Curtis and the Palazzo kind of became this gathering place for American and English expatriates um so they that's where they met the artists like Whistler and Johnson, your sergeant, and they had like, you know, just hanging out with other artists and philosophers of the day. And this like Palazzo Babaro became this major source of inspiration for Isabella to create her own museum in Boston. So just imagine like, you know, this Palazzo of, you know, beautiful art and architecture with all these intelligent minds. Yes. And she wants to do the same thing in Boston. Yes. She was like, so forward thinking, thinking to like knowing these artists, like, if I can get their work in mm -hmm. my place, like, these are the up and coming, like, famous, most famous like, artists huge. of our day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna be huge. Oh, okay. Love it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so she had, like I mentioned, had been kind of collecting on a small personal scale leading up until this. And then in 1891, she inherited 1.75 million from her father's wow. death, mm -hmm. which is a lot of money just for one a woman to inherit. First of all, right? Like I think we all remember that with Lizzie Borden, um, you know, at this time. And this is when she really started upping her game in collecting because she had more money now. So okay. she, one of her like first significant purchases was Rembrandt's self-portrait um age 23 which she purchased in 1896 um wow. yeah so they just decided that they she and her husband had this idea to create a space um for their collections and they you know came up with the idea of a museum and they reached out to local architect or I'm sorry he's not local I don't think so I don't know who cares <laughs> <laughs> they reached out to an architect named Willard, Willard Sears, who had remodeled their house in Brookline, Massachusetts. And um, they, at first they considered like expanding their current home and combining two houses oh. on the street. Okay. Like they were going to like connect two houses. 
But then Isabella's collection and her ambitions like just continued to grow and grow. And so they decided it was more sensible to buy land and build a brand new museum um, with apartments for them living within the museum. Oh, okay. So that was built. That wasn't just like they took an existing building and like turned it into the museum. It was actually built. They bought the land and then they built um, a building for the museum and then they moved themselves into it as well. I believe the fourth floor was like the residence. Yeah, that's Um, cool. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, sadly, Jack died of a stroke (gasps) on December 10th, 1898. No. Um, So he never really got to see it completed. But it really was both of their ideas. So Isabella continued with their plan and she purchased a pot of land in Fens and selected um, Willard Sears to draw the plans for the museum. Um, And at the time, there was almost like no other buildings in the area. And now I know it's in like a very like urban area of Boston, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Go very far out to (laughs) get there. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the city for sure. Yeah. So, um, this architect, he soon learned that it might be kind of challenging to have Isabella as an employer. Um, she wanted to play a very active role in the construction and she loved to continually make changes while they were Oh my God, who does this sound like? Who does this sound like? (laughs) Yeah. And she would like insist that the workmen undo and redo their work and poor Willard Sears, the architect, just had to run interference between Isabella and his workers. Um, yeah. So, but Isabella actually prided herself in being so involved. She prided herself on her daily presence on the job site. Yeah, because you know what? Um, uh, her husband would have been. Yeah. So, and it's her so money. What? Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's so being responsible. She's get, making sure she's getting what she's paying for. Yeah, she might be a pain, whatever, but, like, if she changes her mind, she's paying for that. So just add it to her tab. (laughs) Yeah, that's what my neighbor always says. Like, if you want anything done, you have to be a bitch to these people. Yeah. (laughs) She said. She's, like, so nice. And she's, like, God, the only way these men and, like, businesses will listen to you is if you're a freaking bitch. You have to be a pain. You have to be a pain. And I'm, like, damn. Yeah. Okay. So good for her. I'm liking this, like, take charge attitude. Loving it. Yeah. And so there's like pictures of her standing on a ladder in the courtyard. They have pictures of her like actually working on like stucco stucco walls. And like she was involved too. Like she was telling them sometime, like, no, don't do it that way. Do it this way. You know? So she like helped contribute to the work as well and was on site. Um, And completed by late 1901 and Isabella moved into the private fourth floor living quarters where she devoted herself to personally arranging works of art in the gallery's first three floors so she arranged everything she had like the touch of where everything went you know in her museum Um, And in 1902, she installed a collection of painting, sculptures, tapestries, furniture, manuscripts, rare books, and decorative arts. And she um, continued to acquire works and change the installations for the rest of her life. I got to get back there, knowing all this. Like, What? (laughs) 
knowing all this, I'm like, I have to go back. Oh, I know. I want to go back so bad too, after like doing all this research. Um, so some of the notable acquisitions, I already mentioned Rembrandt's self-portrait, which she acquired in 1896. She also acquired Titian's Europa in also in 1896 for a world record price of 20,000 pounds at the time. Um, So that's 1896. It was 20,000 pounds. Like I didn't do the math, but I'm sure it's worth a shit ton today. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then she also has Vermeer's The Concert, which was acquired in 1891. Um, It was one of her first purchases for only $6,000. Um, so those are just some of the notable works that are there, but in addition to the artwork, the museum is also known for its courtyard, which is so beautiful. Oh my Um, God. I I think they do weddings there. I'm sure they do like events and stuff like that. Um, or they used to definitely do like photo shoots and stuff for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, so it's so beautiful. And so it has these like stonework arches and columns and walls, um, And it has a lot of different types of architecture, including Roman, Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic, and Renaissance. And I saw, like, one way that was it was described, like, combining all those should have made, like, kind of like a disaster. But it ended up in this, like, beautiful, harmonious outdoor space. Um, Yeah, it works so good. It's, It's so breathtaking. It really is. And it's right in the center. Like the whole museum is like a square around it. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can't really miss it. Um, Yeah. It's definitely like, um, you know, a work of art in itself. Mm -hmm. So in 1919, Isabella suffered the first of a series of strokes and died five years later on July 17th. 1924 which is interesting because her husband also died of a stroke um but she was age 84 so she was you know she lived a good long age and she was buried in the Gardner family tomb at mount auburn cemetery in cambridge between <gasps> and that's my that is my favorite cemetery oh really i i when i lived in newton yeah. i used to drive there all the time to go on walks it's, you need to go like, and see her family gorgeous. too. It's it was like designed. It was it's like a really old cemetery that was designed by like the guy who designed Central Park oh, because they nice. wanted to make it like a park and have like ponds and mm-hmm. gardens and like all this really cool stuff. So yeah, I used to go when my um, daughter was like newborn in the stroller uh-huh. and walk around. I wish I knew she was buried there. I've probably seen her, the mm-hmm. family tomb, because they have the coolest stuff there. Like yeah, the I didn't see, like, a picture of it or anything. So I don't know, like, how noticeable it would be, yeah. like, or how huge it is. Um, but that's where she is. And you should definitely go back and take a picture for me. <laughs> oh my God. I'm, I'm going to have to. I love that place. Okay. Sorry. So I like fangirling about a no. cemetery. <laughs> yes, always. That is always welcome. Fangirls for cemeteries. Oh, yes. So in Isabella's will, she created an endowment of $1 million and outlined stipulations for support of the museum to keep it going. Um, and that included the permanent collection, which was not to be significantly altered. 
And in keeping with her philanthropic nature, she also left like tons of money to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children, Animal Rescue League of Boston, and Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Wow. So children and animals, like she left a ton of money to that. I love her even more now. Uh, She was also a devout Anglo-Catholic, and I kind of love this um, little tidbit about her. And in her will, she requested that the Cowley Fathers, which is an Anglican religious order for men, celebrate an annual memorial requiem mass for the repose of her soul in the museum chapel. And this duty is still performed every day. Each year, or I'm sorry, not every day, to this oh. day. Sorry. <laughs> this duty is performed to like, this day. Damn. <laughs> it happens once a year on her birthday. They okay, do this, that like, makes sense. that makes sense. Memorial Requiem Mass, and it now, like, alternates between the Society of St. John the Evangelist and the Church of the Advent. But, like, she basically okay. has a Mass for her birthday every year just to make sure. Her soul is doing good up in heaven. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty awesome legacy, like forever. Like, when does that end? They're going to do it forever. <laughs> forever. Yeah, they're literally going to do it forever. So legacy. Gotta, gotta like go to that mass <laughs> at some oh, point. I love it. So that's a Elster Gardner and basically the origins of the museum, Jack Gardner and how it all came to be. So I know now you're going to talk about, you know, the whole point of the series, the heist, the mystery. The heist of it all. So like, honestly, I know I've heard about, you know, this story on other podcasts and just like you've heard about it. Okay. Well, I literally in my brain, until doing this research, thought that this was, like, happened in the 70s or 80s, the heist. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know why I I thought it was, like... Until I, like, listened to a podcast. Yeah, yeah, but no. so 70s. Yes, my mind all 70s. Like, you just think, like, oh, people can't get away with that, kind of, like, in modern times. (laughs) I guess that is modern times, but not to anyone feel... yeah. (laughs) I mean, the difference between the 70s and the 90s is pretty big, right? right? Mm-hmm. So, um, the difference in technology and, like, security. So, you think, yeah. like, it would be so much harder to get away with this, like, yeah. more recent you get. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I'm going to take you back to the actual robbery, which occurred in the early hours of Sunday, March 18th, 1990. Um, and, you know. We love a 90s scandal around here. <laughs> anything anything that happened in the 90s, we love to hear about it. Um, so this is pretty much all we know about what happened that early morning. So the thieves were first witnessed around 12.30 a.m. by several St. Patrick's Day revelers leaving a party near the museum. So, like, okay. I don't know if you've ever been to Boston on St. Patrick's Day. I was going to say, this is the most Boston way to rob. <laughs> I mean, like, they yeah. know the cops are all going to be at, yeah. like, St. Patrick's Day bars and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 
they're like, what's the best day of the year to pull this heist off? So smart. The night of St. Patrick's Day, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah, they're going to be just so getting bad. drunks, you know, taking care of all the drunks and stuff like that. So they're not going to be th- even thinking about this. Right. So even these witnesses who, like, say that these they saw these, you know, um, these two thieves, do we believe them? I don't know. They were wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, but anyway, okay, so the two men were supposedly disguised as police officers Mm -hmm. and they were parked in a hatchback on palace road about like a hundred feet from the side of the the entrance um and the witnesses again shit-faced um believed them (laughs) to be policemen but like again who's to say it's saint patrick's day that's right (laughs) so crime and a crime okay so the museum guards on duty that night were rick Abath, age 23, Abath, 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 and Randy Hestand, age 25. So Abath was a regular night watchman, and it was, is it Hestands? Hestons? Hestons? Hestons. Hestons. Like Hestons. Charleston yeah. Hestond? <laughs> but like Hestand? Yes. He stands. Yeah, Heston. Okay. And it was Heston's first time on the night shift, which also is like kind of questionable. Mm-hmm. So, Who's the new guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Look at him first. <laughs> so the security policy maintained that one guard patrolled the galleries with a flashlight and a walkie talkie while the other sat at the security desk. Um, Abath went on patrol first. And during his patrol, fire alarms sounded in two different rooms in the museum, mm. but he couldn't locate like any fire or smoke. So he returned to Not the security so room where the fire alarm control panel indicated smoke in multiple rooms. He assumed like some something was wrong because he's like, no, there was no smoke mm-hmm. or anything. So he shut down the panel oh, because God. he thought like, Oh, we're getting like a false alarm. Just shut the whole panel down. So he went back on patrol. And um, before he completed his rounds, he made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum, briefly opening the side door and then shutting it again. And he didn't tell Heston he was doing this or why. So why did he open the side door? Did he go out there like for we don't know break or we don't know. Okay. We don't know, but it's like sketchy. So um, he completed his tour and returned to the security desk around 1 a.m., at which point, you know, they switched and Mm -hmm. Heston started his rounds with the flashlight and the walkie talkie. So they basically like, you know, took turns. So now Heston, who was like opening the side door and like just Mm -hmm. doing kind of sketchy things, he's now on on the rounds. So at 1:20 a.m., 20 minutes after he started his rounds, the thieves drove up to the side entrance, parked, and walked up to the side door. They rang the buzzer, which connected them to Abath through like this intercon system, okay. and they explained to him that they were police investigating a disturbance and needed to be buzzed in. So he could see them on the closed circuit television wearing, you know, 
police uniforms. So, yeah. and I didn't realize it was like a side door. Like I knew that they came and like, we're like, we need to get in. We've got a disturbance. But I just thought they, I just assumed they came to the front door. Like the police would a side door seems very sketchy now. Like, it, yeah. Like how would they know of right. like to enter that door? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's weird. So, um, you know, he wasn't aware of any disturbance, mm-hmm. um, but he figured, oh, it's St. Patrick's Day in Boston. Um, yeah. Maybe someone climbed over the fence and someone reported it. Like, um, they're dressed as police officers. I'm going to let them in because, like, classic, you know, trusting. Human you nature. Know, yeah. Like anyone we- would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We all would open, you know, the door for them. Just so remember to gives... question authority, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me see your badge. <laughs> yes. If you take anything from this episode, just remember to question authority. <laughs> oh, God. Um, okay. So the thieves were let into a locked foyer that separated the side door from the museum and they approached Abath at his desk and asked if anyone else was in the museum and to bring them down. So he radioed Hestand, who's out on patrol, to return to the security desk. And Abath noticed around this time that the mustache on the taller guy looked like really fake. <laughs> oh, no. so, it's like I just imagine it to be like hanging off kind of, you know. Yeah. And I think the other thief like noticed that he was mm-hmm. kind of like questioning so he told Abath that he looked familiar and that they may need or they may have um a warrant for his arrest so he oh. wanted him to come out from the desk like wait a minute you look familiar step mm-hmm. out here and um give us identification so uh-huh. he complied stepping away from the desk where the only panic button to alert the police Mm. was. So they knew that there was a panic button behind that desk. And the shorter thief forced Abath against a wall, spreading his legs and handcuffed him. Um, But he noticed that he wasn't frisked, which he thought was kind of weird. Right. Like if you're arresting me and you're a real cop, you would do that. Right. And probably like read me my rights. (laughs) Yeah, you know, no. something. Although it was Boston in the 90s. Right, yeah. 90s so. And on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, at this point, Huston walked into the room and the taller thief turned around and handcuffed him. So once both guards were handcuffed, the thieves uh, revealed their true intentions to rob the museum and asked the guards to not give them any problems. So they were basically like, okay you are now part of like a heist. <laughs> so <laughs> just know that. So the heist is starting the, now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's go time. So the thieves wrapped duct tape around the heads and uh. eyes of guards. And without asking for directions, they led the guards into the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and workbench. So they knew where they were going. Like, Oh my God. And like duct tape around your whole head is uh, just so miserable. Oh my God. So the thieves examined the wallets of the guards and explained that they know where they live now and they Mm. better not tell authorities Mm. anything and they'll get a reward in like a year. So if you keep your mouths shut and we don't get busted in a year, you'll get your reward. Oh, 
I could be down for that. Yeah, I would be <laughs> like, saying, like okay. I could probably keep my mouth shut for like a year, and if you want to pay yeah. me off, and like, I mean, obviously, I didn't rob the place, you know. Yeah, it was not <laughs> I my fault. Who you are? <laughs> I can't tell yeah. them who you are, anyways. Right. Exactly. So it took the thieves 11 minutes to subdue the guards. So it was now 1:35. So it from the time they walked into the door until they have the guards mm-hmm. like duct taped and everything. Um, it's been 11 minutes. So the thieves uh, movements through the museum were recorded on infrared motion detectors steps in the first room um, they entered, which was the Dutch room on the second floor were not recorded until 1:48 AM. So that was 13 minutes after they finished subduing the guards and that's like I guess they're thinking that's when they were kind of waiting to make sure there was no other secret panic button Mm -hmm. you know that the police were alerted so Mm -hmm. that's what they think that 13 minute that's pretty smart too you know like because yeah you just like if you're a thief and you panic you just go start trying to take everything you could be caught in the act as well you know and I mean it's just more evidence Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just more evidence that these are career criminals. Yeah. Like yeah, exactly. these guys probably drive around with police uniforms in their car yeah. to, to just on the fly, like rob mm-hmm. a place, you know, like, Oh, we know. Yeah. Dress up in these legit police. And they probably got the uniforms from the actual police station. Like there could have been mm-hmm. a police insider again. I I'm would not, not be don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So, um, As the thieves approached the paintings in the Dutch room, a device began beeping that would normally trip when a patron was too close Mm. to, like, the painting. So it's not like an alarm. It's just kind of like, okay. So, um, of course, the thieves smashed it. Um, They took Storm of the Sea of Galilee um, and a lady and a gentleman in black, which are names of um, paintings, and they threw them on the marble floor, which shattered the glass frames. And using a blade, they cut the canvases out of their stretchers. Mm. Um, they also removed a large Rembrandt self-portrait oil from the wall, but left it hanging, uh, left it leaning against a cabinet. And investigators believe they may have considered it like too big to take. Um because it was painted on wood, so they couldn't just oh, like they couldn't roll it up. Roll it up. Yeah. So instead, the thieves took a small postage stamp size self-portrait etching by Rembrandt on display beneath the larger portrait. And on the right side of the room, they removed landscape with obelisk and obelisk and the concert from their frame. So those are two other paintings. Mm-hmm. And the final piece taken from the room was an ancient Chinese goo, which I think is like um, some sort of like a bowl or vase or something. Oh, uh-huh. Um, wow. apparently was like not even that expensive. So they're kind of like, whatever they can get their hands taken on maybe. this. Yeah. yeah. But, but it didn't mm-hmm. seem like, it didn't seem like they were just grabbing at things because mm-hmm. like some of it just seemed so well planned and intentional. So they're mm-hmm. kind of like, why would they take that? They, that part still is kind of like part of the most interesting mystery. Right, like they could have taken that bigger Rembrandt, but they were like, well, this is too big, you know. Mm -hmm. Right, but then again, there was way more, like, options they could have taken that would have yeah, as this Mm -hmm. bowl. So, like, yeah, it's just weird. Um, 
So at 1.51 a.m., while one thief continued working in the Dutch room, the other entered a narrow hallway dubbed the short gallery on the other end of the second floor um, where the other thief joined soon. So again, they have that infrared motion. They know where there were footsteps, like at what time. So So in this room, they began removing screws from um, from a frame displaying a Napoleonic flag. And it seemed like they were going to try to steal the flag, but it appeared to have been like too difficult to remove, I guess. So Mm. um, they only took like this Eagle that was on top of the flagpole, which again is not that valuable, you know, Mm -hmm. like on its own, like, Oh, this is on the top of the flagpole of Napoleonic flag. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. I want but, I want to see the flag. Like I don't Yeah, want I also wonder if it like devalues the flag a little bit though, not to have that on it. Oh, I'm and, sure. I'm sure mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. Which yeah. is just kind of also like, you know, like malicious in a way. You know, like are they doing this to try like is there a bigger purpose kind of? Cause like they didn't have to just take right. that little thing if it wasn't worth, you know, it's also devaluing the artwork that's there. Right. Right. So is this like a personal thing? Yeah. That's, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. I know it's a mystery people. (laughs) No, I like that. I like that though. We should um, send that tip in. (laughs) Yes. Um, Okay. So they also took five Degas sketches from the Mm -hmm. room and um, the last work stolen was Shay Tortoni from the Blue Room on the first floor. And the museum's motion detectors did not detect any motion within the Blue Room during the thieves' time in the building. So they were in there and they stole this painting, but it wasn't detected on, you know, the motion detector thingy. Yeah, exactly. that was like kind of weird. Better security system. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, um, Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so as they prepared to leave, the thieves checked on the guards one last time and asked if they were comfortable. They then moved they seem to, ki- uh, I mean, like, I know they're the bad guys, they, but they seem, right. like, kind of, like, not horrible. Like, they're not trying to kill them. They could have just walked in and killed them, you know, honestly. Exactly. I mean, yes, they could have, but I think, like, clearly that's not their purpose. Like, mm-hmm. they just want to get the art, get out of there. Um, and then they figure we'll be fine. Like, is one of the security guards really involved? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The first time I heard the story, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it's definitely this other security guard, mm-hmm. obviously. But then you find out, like, oh, it's this is an unsolved case. So, obviously, they would have really checked into the security guard, right? Like, right. he's obviously cleared so, and he was a victim too, I guess. You know, I, I mean, if he right. wanted to really try to look innocent, he could have gone through all that, mm-hmm. but he didn't really have to. Right, right. So I don't know. It's crazy to think of like all these different things like that. But, but okay. So um, they then moved to the security director's office where they took the video cassettes that recorded their entrance on the closed circuit cameras and the data printouts from the motion detector equipment. But the movement data was still captured on the hard drive. So that's how we do still have like that infrared uh, motion detector information. Um, So the frame for Shea Tortoni was left at the security director's desk. So that last painting they took and the thieves then moved to take the artwork out of the museum and the side entrance doors were opened 
once at 240 and again for the last time at 245. So the robbery lasted 81 minutes. Wow. Um, that seems like kind of a long time, but I guess if the security guards are, you know, tied up, you can kind of take your time, you know, if there's right you know, the panic button. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. It's like, it seems like a long time, but then also quick to, I, I don't know. I've never mm-hmm. robbed a museum. So. <laughs> I know. It, yeah, exactly. It does seem, it just seems like, okay, you might know I want exactly these pieces and you'd go straight in for them, you know, strategically, but I don't also know if they did know all of that. It kind of does seem a little random. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know. I know. It's crazy. So the next shift of guards arrived later in the morning and realized something was amiss when they couldn't, um, like, get contact with anyone inside to be let in. So they're like, hi, we're here. Like, let us fucking mm-hmm. in the building. Um, so they called in a security director who, upon entering the building with his keys, found nobody at the watch desk and he called the police. So, um, the police, which apparently was like protocol, like if you think something's off, call the police. Mm-hmm. Don't even don't look do yourself. Not enter. Do not enter. Yeah. So the police searched the building until they found the guards still tied up in the basement. And this is basically so we have, you know, the guards' account of what happened, mm-hmm. and that is the heist. <laughs> and like is, very little like the like you were saying the footage you know that we have but doesn't seem like that much so well, the it's cigars not, it's and not that. even like yeah it's not even like pictures of the people right they yeah. stole that video it's more so just it's like a timeline mm-hmm. yeah and and then based on what the guards say these people looked like I guess because there are sketches mm-hmm. so you can check out the sketches and see if they look like any of your like <laughs> you know uncles them. or something <laughs> is it your husband <laughs> <laughs> um excuse me is this your husband <laughs> just ask random people do you know these men <laughs> but that's the end of the heist so um I don't know we we kind of have to discuss here what happened after who is what are the theories um there's also a little kind of like little tidbit worth noting that I think you're going to cover of mm-hmm. you know something that plays into kind of the more recent day so yes as i mentioned earlier isabella's will when she died decreed that nothing in her collection should be moved or altered so this is just kind of so sad but the empty frames of the stolen paintings are like hanging in the museum still today as placeholders you know of what was there and placeholders for hopefully their potential return someday um and they do that because like legally her will says that nothing can be altered so they're just waiting for these paintings to come back (laughs) it's really crazy when you Mm -hmm. when you go and see like it's pretty powerful to just see that Mm -hmm. it is frame with the wallpaper behind it like it's crazy yeah it makes it feel real it definitely makes it feel real and that's like something you know why this museum's so gorgeous anyways but there's this whole mystery involved with it and so it's kind of a 
I hate to say like fun, but you know, it kind of makes you feel like you witness something, you know, pretty mysterious um, by yeah. seeing the empty frames. Um, but because of the museum's low funds and lack of an insurance policy, which sounds crazy to me, um, yeah. <laughs> the director had to get help from Sotheby's and Christie's auction houses to post a reward of $1 million within three days of the heist. This was then eventually increased to $5 million in 1997. And then it doubled to $10 million with the expiration date of the end of the year in 2017. So if they raised it to 10 million, if Someone came forward by the end of 2017. Then this reward was again extended following an outpouring of tips from the public. So it is the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. Um, And the reward is just for information that leads directly to the recovery of all of the items in good condition because the statute of limitations has actually run out already on the crime so the people can't be prosecuted anyways that is the craziest <laughs> part to me yeah like, it's like these people now yeah they could literally just be like yep yeah, we did a all right they peace, we book, out book book deal you know whatever yeah. but like the art they have is more valuable than any of that really um yeah. and, and federal prosecutors have said that they will not prosecute anyone who willingly returns the items so you know they just want the items back um in 1994 the museum director Ann holly received an anonymous letter from someone who had claimed to be attempting to try to negotiate the return of the artwork so this anonymous writer said that they were a third-party negotiator and did not know the identity of the thieves um um, hmm. sketchy. They went on to explain that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence, but as the opportunity had passed, there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork and they wanted to negotiate re- a return. The writer explained hmm. that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country, whatever that means, <laughs> under controlled conditions. So, like, it's being in good condition, which is one of the stipulations. And they wanted immunity for themselves the writer and everybody else involved and 2.6 million for the return of the artwork which was supposed to be sent to an offshore bank account um and then you know at the same time the art was going to be handed over when the exchange was made and if the museum was interested in negotiating they should print a coded message in the boston globe which is very like Da Vinci Code, I feel like. So they're I saying, love that. <laughs> yes. So these negotiators are saying, like, if you're interested, print a coded message in the Boston Globe, take out an ad. Um, and, and to establish credence, the writer conveyed information only known by the museum and the FBI at the time. Oh, my um, God. What? They knew something, like, that no one else knew or had been out there publicly. Um, and the museum director, Holly, Ann Holly, felt that this was a strong lead. She contacted the FBI and then contacted the Globe, and the coded message was printed um, on May 1st, 1994, in the Boston Globe. 
And she received a second letter a few days later, which the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating. So he had seen the code, but oh, then that he had become fearful of what they perceived as a massive investigation by federal and state authorities to determine their identity. And the writer, <laughs> yeah, obviously, the writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options. And Holly never heard oh from them. Oh, my God. So she believed it, you know, like um, they knew information that nobody else had put out there. But then I think they realized, yes, exactly. Like, you, it, no matter what you try to do with this negotiation, they're going to get you. <laughs> yep. Yep. They'll get you on something. Even if they promise you like immunity or whatever, it doesn't matter. Right, exactly. Wow. So that just, seems like has been gone. They're going to find something, I feel like. Yeah, that was probably the people. Yeah. So, I mean, wow. that is just Here's kind something. of like some of the aftermath of the crime. Um, but, like, I know there's so many theories around this case oh and God. suspects. So, you can talk about some of those now. <laughs> Yeah, so there are, I mean, so many theories, but I basically did, you know, the top three or four kind of theories. So the Federal Bureau of Investigation, also known as the FBI. <laughs> have you ever seen ever the shirts? Heard that, yeah, have you ever seen the shirts at like beaches that say female body? Yeah. <laughs> I was alive in the early two thousands, yes. <laughs> Why do I think that that is, like, literally the funniest thing ever? <laughs> like, the first time I saw that, I was like, I want one of those shirts. <laughs> that is fucking hilarious. I'm getting you that for your birthday now. <laughs> Next year. FBI Please shirt. Take note. Please take note. Female body inspector. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. And so the FBI took immediate control of the case on um, on the grounds that the artwork could probably cross state lines. I mean, mm -hmm. you're talking I, about yeah, such an extreme heist. Like, these people are not just, like, keeping it in Boston, right? Mm -hmm. So um, investigators um, have called the case unique for its lack of strong physical evidence. So the thieves did not leave behind footprints or hair, and it's inconclusive if the fingerprints left at the scene were from the thieves or museum employees. So early 90s, this is right before I feel like the game got real strong on, you know, mm -hmm. all the DNA and crime right. yeah, yeah, yeah. analysis. Mm -hmm. Like, this was right before all that kind of. Yeah, it was probably very early and they probably weren't using it for robberies. Although this is a huge robbery, which I would think like. Yeah. It. Yeah. But I mean, there was nothing. I mean, they couldn't find anything. So the FBI has done some DNA analysis in the years following as advancements in the field grew. So some of the evidence has um, been. Oh, lost amongst their files okay so the guards and witnesses in the arrest described one thief as about um five feet nine inches to five feet ten inches um okay. in his late 30s with a medium build and the other as six feet 
basically, you know, around there in his early 30s with a heavier build. So, um, wow. So I guess any evidence that they did leave has been lost. Like, can we get a second look? (laughs) Can we, like... (laughs) Can we get someone on like, that? How did like, that happen? I mean, yeah, exactly. How did, does evidence get lost? Like, I know that there's human error, but come on, this is a huge case. No, I think the police were involved somehow. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it was just so I'm corrupt. thinking that more I mean, and more. If you think corrupt cops, like, you automatically think Boston, like, mm-hmm. early night, like, anywhere from, like, probably the late 60s to the early 90s right even before that before that sorry I mean yeah probably early 1900s like it started getting real just bad for um you know bad cops it's just, it's just anyway. so big that like it feels like there yeah. has to be something of that level involved yes in- exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, one of the theories, which, you know, we kind of talked about maybe a one of the security guards was in on it. Mm-hmm. So um, the security guard, Rick, uh, a bath. Is it a bath? Have I, so I've been saying a bath. I think you're saying a bath, but I, yeah, sorry, guys. There's no way to know. There is no way to, like, Google Translate that or whatever it is. Um, Okay, so he was investigated early on because of his suspicious behavior on the night of the Mm -hmm. theft. Um, Was he the one that opened the side door, too? He is. He briefly mm -hmm. opened and And they came in through the side door. Interesting. Yep, yep. So it could have been a move possibly to have, like, signaled, okay, go ahead and park. Like, mm-hmm. this is going to happen now. So he told authorities that he did this routinely to ensure the door was locked. So, you know, sometimes, yeah. like, you can't tell sure. just by looking at a door if it's locked. You actually just, like, mm-hmm. open it. Okay, if it doesn't open, it's locked. Whatever, you know. Yeah. Double so, check, okay. yeah. Okay, makes sense. Um, one of his colleagues told journalists that um, if a bath had opened the door routinely, as he maintains, superiors would have seen it on computer printouts and, like, told him uh-huh. to not do that. Uh-huh. So um, even more suspicion had been drawn from the museum's motion detectors, which did not detect any movement in the blue room, which housed that last painting they stole during the 81 minutes the thieves were in the museum. The only mm-hmm. footprints in the room that night were a bath during his security patrol. So he oh, was so he could have been the only in that one. Room. Mm-hmm. Yes. So a security consultant reviewed the motion detector equipment several weeks after the theft and determined they were operating correctly. So he maintains his innocence and the FBI agent overseeing the case in its early years determined the guards were too incompetent and foolish to have pull, uh, pulled off the crime. Um, but I don't know. They could have definitely been like, could you, these guys are so young. They're probably like in college, just doing that as a side job. If some mobsters came up to them and were like, Hey, listen, I'll give you, I'll give you $20,000, which is nothing to them, but everything to these young guys to keep their mouth shut and to go along with it. Okay. (laughs) Wasn't he like one of the podcasts I listened to? Like, I thought he was also like a, 
like a rock star, like an aspiring yes. rock star. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think he went to the Berkeley College of yes. Music like yes. in yeah. um, Boston. So yeah, he was like a rocker guy, had the long hair, the whole hair, early 90s right, exactly. grunge thing. And apparently like he would tell, you know, his roommates and stuff, oh, the stupid, you know, security gig, but whatever. Like, of course he's going to talk about it like that to his friends, you know? Right. So I don't know. I don't know. You know, everybody complains uh, about their job. They don't all like yeah. commit illegal activities. Yeah, exactly. So in 2015, the FBI released a security of a security video from the museum on the night before the theft showing Abath buzzing, oh, buzzing in an unidentified man into the museum to converse at the security desk. So he told investigators he couldn't recall the incident or he didn't recognize the man. So the FBI requested the public's assistance and several former museum guards came forward and said the stranger was a bass boss, the museum's deputy security chief. But like, why would he say he doesn't recognize, recognize the man? Yeah. Right. But that was in 2015. Oh, okay, okay. And this crime happened in 1990. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. You were only looking at the guy for a few minutes, you know? So, um, or no, if he didn't recognize it was his boss. Yeah, wait, that's weird. Okay, never mind. Right? Sorry. Like, that, isn't that like what, uh, well, at least other security guards are saying that like, oh, I know him. But I can see that you might be looking at yeah. security footage that's grainy or something and you can't really tell who it is, you know. Right, um, right. But if it's someone that you regularly see, you know, that's kind of strange. Yeah, it's just weird that he didn't remember that it was his boss, but everyone else, like, vouched for it. So, um, so it's interesting, and I still kind of question, you know, one or both of the security guards. Um, but, again, nothing. It almost seems like someone on the inside had to know something or do something or, yeah. Be involved somehow, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, so next biggest theory, of course, involves Whitey Bulger, who oh, was okay. famously, famously one of the most powerful crime crime bosses in Boston during mm-hmm. that era, and he was the head of the Winter Hill Gang, again, very famously. Um, yeah, I'm like, why not just throw Whitey into the mix, I Yes, yeah. he was probably involved in like every crime in Boston at that time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Any crime that ever happened there, they're yeah. like, oh yeah, Whitey Boulder and his guys. So he claimed he did not organize the heist and in fact sent agents out in an attempt to determine who did this because the robbery was committed on his turf and he wanted like mm-hmm. to be like, this, this was on my turf. I did not do it. Like yeah I, I don't know I feel like I feel like he would have been like yeah my guys right. did it or something because like he and I just protected. don't feel like mobsters are like maybe they are but they're more into other crimes you know they're more into like trafficking stuff which could be art but like I don't know it just doesn't seem like a typical like mobster thing yeah but but the thing is with Bulger he is um you know, he's known to be connected in with the Boston police of that time with all the mm-hmm. corruption that's happening. Mm-hmm. Like he's, 
he's in this. So the FBI agent Thomas McShane investigated Bulger for his involvement, and he determined that um, his strong ties with the Boston police could explain how the thieves acquired legitimate police uniforms, or perhaps, oh, yeah. that, or perhaps that real police were arranged to do the heist, so that oh, these shit. were real police officers, and maybe that's why, like. They got kind of part of the job right, but then just grabbed, Mm -hmm. you know, the flag, you know, the thing on top of the flag, like, instead Mm -hmm. of going through with getting the flag. So, um, he also had relations with the IRA, the Irish Republican Mm -hmm. Army. Um, But this FBI agent, McShane, he identifies the bogus tripping of the fire alarm ahead of the heist, a calling card of the IRA, and the rival... Rival Ulster Volunteer Force, whatever that is, I've never heard of it, but he's saying that's a calling card of the IRA mm-hmm. of doing this, like, oh, oh, let's make them think there's a, you know, something happening. Right, like a distraction. They go investigate mm-hmm. it. They say, mm-hmm. oh, this isn't a thing. Let's just turn off the whole, we'll just turn mm-hmm. off the whole um, alarm system or whatever. So um, both organizations had agents in Boston at the time, and both had demonstrated capability in the past of pulling off art heists. So McShane's investigation of Bulger and the IRA did not produce any evidence to tie them to the theft. And according to Charlie Hill, a retired art and antiquities investigator for Scotland Yard, Bulger gave um, the gardener works to the IRA and they are most likely in Ireland. Oh, he, he gave, so he gave the gardener works. So the pieces mm-hmm. of art to mm-hmm. the IRA and mm-hmm. they're in Ireland. So Wait, that's so what Bulger gave it to them is what they think. Yes. That's yeah, okay. what the Scotland Yard guy. Uh, okay. Interesting. Which, I mean, that makes kind of the most sense to me. But again, there's no actual direct evidence. So mm-hmm. as much as this seems like probably the most plausible thing that happened, there is no legit evidence. So we don't Crazy. know. Crazy. Like, yeah. we may never, ever know. No, I don't think we're ever going to know. I don't I think, think we're going to ever know. If we haven't heard yet about Unless what's happening. But, but yeah. Right. And now with true crime being like such a thing and this case has probably gotten so much more widespread attention through true crime podcasts to cover this, you know, and like people might actually have like legit tips now for yeah, where and these paintings might be. I just wonder, I know you have one more suspect, but like one like okay if you actually have this artwork you can't ever do anything with it because everybody knows it's stolen so you can't sell it sell it on the black market and like so what's the point (laughs) I guess just to have it it's the most valuable stolen thing that you can't even display that you can't like (laughs) sell that's what I always think about that's what I always think about with the black market I'm like yeah but like okay it's legal quote unquote in the black market but what are you going to do with it it's just going to sit in your bedroom like where no one's allowed to see it yeah it's it's bizarre it's bizarre (laughs) so um yeah like you said I have one more kind of like main theory so that is 
includes this guy, Brian McDevitt. And he was a con man from Boston who attempted and failed to rob um, to rob the Hyde collection in Glens Falls, New York in 1981. And he dressed up as a FedEx driver, carried handcuffs and duct tape and planned to steal a Rembrandt. So okay. this was the year after this is, um, okay. oh no, sorry, this is in 81. So a whole like decade before. Oh, so okay. he was also, he was also a known flag aficionado. Ah, and with, you know, the Napoleonic flag. flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he also fit the description of the larger robber, except for his thinning red hair, which like hair can be dyed. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Um, and these parallels to the Gardner case fascinated the FBI. So they interviewed him in late 1990, but he denied any involvement and refused to take a polygraph test, which now we know aren't even deemed mm-hmm. like, you yeah, know, they're like 50% effective. Yeah. Yeah. Which like back then would like sentence him to life, you know, even if yeah. he didn't do yeah. it. I <laughs> think now they just do so, it to um, see if like people get nervous or not. Like that's really the only Yeah. Way. Yeah. But it doesn't hold up in court. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the FBI ran his fingerprints, which did not match any of the crime scene um, okay. fingerprints. So they and do have, yeah, these, I forgot about that, like some fingerprints from the crime scene. Yeah, yeah, or at least they did, like, right. back in 1990 when they, you know. But also, like, now there's CODIS and, like, where you can run, you know, mm-hmm. identity searches for anybody who's ever, you know, been involved in a crime. So, obviously, these people have not been involved in a crime, I would think, previously, which makes me think more about the inside connection from the police, potentially. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And this guy, um, you know, he refused any involvement and he moved to California later and conned his way into television and film writing. And he died in t- uh, 2004. So this guy, oh, I don't know. I know more he's, about him. <laughs> he's, I know. It sounds pretty interesting. But he's, you know, I don't think, I think he's the least likely culpable mm-hmm. here. Yeah. So, um he so, checks some watches. I, I just think it has to be someone on the inside or someone yeah. on the police department, like someone who can kind of cover things up, mm-hmm. who, like you said, would have the uniforms. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, we know of like, you know, some of these uh, blockbuster kind of uh, Boston police corruption stories. Mm-hmm. But like, can you imagine all the just little everyday shit? corruption that's like happening right mm-hmm. that we haven't heard about and haven't yeah. been like Leonardo DiCaprio films <laughs> you know like I know where's this movie that's what I was thinking I was like uh, when we were talking about yeah. White Soldier I'm like okay we've all seen The Departed but where is the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist movie yes that it would be a great movie yeah and think about Leo it, you could that. film you could film at the Gardner Museum which yeah. is fucking gorgeous like great backdrop oh we gotta start making movies <laughs> we really need to start our own movie production house production company. first podcast next movie production company <laughs> yeah oh my god we will take suggestions for names of our new production company uh listen dm us on instagram at famous kate and liz kate with a c 
We love to hear literally anything from you. A hi, a, um, you know. We love chit chat. (laughs) Yeah, God, we love your messages. How's your Wednesday? We'll respond. (laughs) Yeah, send us like a cool topic you want us to cover too. So Mm -hmm. we're open to pretty much anything. Um, I'm so glad we're doing heists. And I know this was really fun. So many directions from here. So I know we'll have two more episodes. You will choose a heist and Mm -hmm. I will choose a heist and we'll have our own little, you know, little storytelling time for you all. I love this one because it's unsolved so we can like guess. So also send us your guesses, right? Do you think it was inside? Do you think it was the security guard? Do you think it was the con man? Whitey Bulger? We want to know. We love theories, right? So, um, yeah, just get in touch. Tell a friend. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And we love you guys. Yeah, and we'll see you, hopefully, for our next installment of Famous Heists. Bye.